Today, I have the pleasure to introduce Dr. Francis Eanes. Professor Eanes is currently a visiting assistant professor of environmental studies at Bates College, where he teaches classes on urban environmental studies, urban and regional food systems, and community-engaged research. He originally comes from the mountains of western Pennsylvania, but has lived in Idaho, Wisconsin, and Indiana before Maine. Having lived in so many different landscapes, his research and teaching interests revolve around urban and rural land use planning. He is especially interested in the social, cultural, and livelihood connections that people develop with land, and how these can help to form healthy and more equitable communities. Before coming to Bates, Professor Eanes earned his doctorate in environmental studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and was a postdoctoral researcher in natural resource social science at Purdue University. He and his Bates students have worked with community partners in Lewiston-Auburn on a variety of local research projects, including some related to the future of Auburn's ag zone. Please join me in welcoming our featured speaker, Professor Francis Eanes. <laughs> Thank you, Marcella, and, and thanks to the folks who organized the forum for the invitation to be with you all today. And thank you for, for coming. I know it's a beautiful day. You could be out cross-country skiing or doing any other wonderful winter activity. But I'm, I'm grateful to be with you all today. And I want to just, before I start, acknowledge the work of uh, a couple of my students, uh, Kristen uh, Kepnick and Hermione Sho, whose name is up here, who were instrumental in the survey um, that is in some ways infamous, but familiar to those of you who uh, have been part of this work for now the past eight months and is the, the subject of what I'll be talking about today. Um, I also want to thank the Bates College for providing some of the financial resources to help make this project come together. Um, and then finally, I want to acknowledge a number of folks who are even in this room today who have been um, thinking and, and acting and um, reimagining what the Ag Zone could be and should be going forward. This is something that's not anything I've done alone, even though I'll be the one presenting alone today. Um, it is, in fact, an ongoing conversation, even if there are um, elements of closure at the moment to the actual ordinance process um, pertaining to the Ag Zone. So if this is inside baseball speak, um, I'm going to take a step back and give you the broader context of what brings me here today. And again, I want to just thank especially those individuals who are Auburn residents who have worked so hard and continue to work on this, on this process in Auburn. So my talk today is titled Conflict, Consensus, and Community in the Future of Auburn's Ag Zone. But before I talk about the Ag Zone, which may be very familiar to many of you but unfamiliar to some, I want to take a step back and think about the broader context of food and farming and landscapes, both in Auburn and in New England in general. So this is a picture. In, uh, if the lighting isn't quite right, this is of the Auburn Poor Farm over where Central Maine uh, Community College is today, right? As recently as the 1950s and 60s, this site and others like it, like the Whiteholm Farm, were not unfamiliar parts of our city landscape. And this is true not just in Auburn, right? This is true all across New England. <coughs> Mill towns sure had urban cores where a lot of the jobs were located, but always had, at least post you know, European settlement, had very vibrant working forest and farm landscapes. Again, these are not unfamiliar sites, not that far in the distant past. And yet, I want to put into context a trend that has been happening for decades, but has increased urgency as we move into the 21st century. We've got a couple of facts up here on the screen from the USDA's Census of Agriculture. It happens every five to 10 years. And in Maine alone, from 2012 to 2017, the most recent years for which these statistics are available, you can see 1.15 million acres of farmland have been lost or converted to other uses. That's 10% of all of the ag land just in that five-year window has transitioned out of agriculture. And this is for a variety of reasons. And I'm, I'm not here today to delve into each one of these. This is really a complicated set of often interrelated factors. But some of them, just to give you a sense of what's driving this process both here in Auburn and New England and the US in general, are increasing scale and specialization of farms. In other words, you're not just a dairy farm anymore, or maybe you weren't just a dairy farm 
um, in the past, but now you are just a dairy farm. You don't also do broiler chickens, or you are just a vegetable <laughs> farmer of potatoes, for example, rather than 10 or 12 different crops. As increasing specialization and scale, these go hand in hand. This makes it more and more difficult for farmers who maybe once were diversified to compete in increasingly global markets. Of course, there's this other trend happening, which is happening hand in hand with the first one, which is increasing concentration and corporatization of the agricultural sector. Several and often very few multinational companies now own everything from seeds to equipment to agricultural inputs, as well as the processing infrastructure and commodity markets that actually get farmers' products or foresters' products to global markets. This control makes it very difficult, shifts the risks to farmers. When they have a bad year, the risk falls on them alone. Again, another parallel trend here. This is happening both in Auburn and across New England, across the US. Loss of mid-scale processing and distribution. This is talking about is the loss of the ability of individual farmers or groups of farmers <coughs> to sell their products locally because they don't have the capacity anymore of some of the local processing plants where they could add value to their product to extend the season of vegetable processing. And of course, this kind of runs through all of these, right, which is the global supply chains that are increasingly dominating what farmers grow, where they sell, and what price they can or cannot command for the products they grow, regardless of what it costs them to produce those goods and services. And I have this word up here, comparative advantage and disadvantage. This is a term right out of economics, but it's the idea that in some geographic locations, the climate or the soils is more favorable to certain kinds of crops and makes it easier or more financially profitable to grow certain things in certain places. A great example would be California's Central Valley, where many of our vegetables currently come from. The, the productivity and location and long, almost year-round growing season makes it easier for farmers in that location to compete for some of the same crops that used to be grown here in New England and sold in New England, right? Our harsh winters, as wonderful as they are for people who love recreation, like skiing, like I do, that makes it really difficult if you only have four to five months as a farmer to grow your crop. And then, of course, this is happening as well, an increasingly aging farming population. I think at last check, the median age of farmers in the United States is just about 60 years old. This trend has been going up and up and up. This is one of the highest median ages of any employment sector in the US, right? And there's a lot of reasons for why that is, which are many, you know, many of which are directly related to the factors I just shared with you. Um, but one of them, which is really stark, is that even in cases where there may be a child to succeed in the farming business, the barriers to entry are so high for them. The capital costs to purchase equipment, to purchase land, are extremely high. And given the high risk of farming and forestry today, those barriers to entry are even higher. The stakes are real. And then, of course, there's this other piece, which is happening in lots of different geographic locations, but often on a much more local geographic scale. This is happening in Auburn, but also in the Portland metro area, which is that competing land uses are also encouraging or making it more difficult uh, for certain kinds of farming or forestry practices to occur. And this is not evenly geographically spread, but it has really profound local effects. And it's this last one that I really want to turn to because this is really where municipalities like Auburn, like Lewiston, like any town or city has an opportunity to actually try and reimagine how they can incentivize or not different kinds of land uses in their jurisdiction. This is a much more common sign that probably many of you who travel around this part of Maine have gotten used to seeing. Land for sale. And so what happens if I go back to this slide that I showed you earlier of 1.15 million farmland acres being lost or converted? What are they being lost or converted to? This is one example. And you can look at, it's maybe a little hard to see in this picture, but you can look at just about any forest here in our area and see these rock walls right on the edge of roads. And it, 
at first to me, as someone who spent a lot of time in the Midwest where there still is a lot of active agriculture was jarring to see. I kept wondering, why are people building rock walls in the woods? And it's not the case that they're building rock walls in the woods. These were agricultural fields. These were places of food production for decades, for generations in some cases. And that mark on the landscape is everywhere. It's ubiquitous and reminds us of what once was there and gives this real visceral sense of what the landscape used to look like in some cases just a few decades ago. All that to say, when we talk about this large, many millions of acres of farmland lost, this is in fact what a lot of former farmland looks like, a lot of forest regrowth. And that can be really wonderful for, for example, <coughs> carbon sequestration as we think about climate change. There, there are some benefits to soil and water, and I want to be really clear that losing farmland to this particular land use is not all a bad thing. But it does have profound implications, as many of you may know, whoever farmed, for the viability of farming as a livelihood, or a forestry for that matter. Other fields that maybe used to be productive, this is what they might look like before they become a forest. But you often see this kind of stranded or abandoned infrastructure that again tells us about what used to be on the landscape, but is no more. So what, what else happens? Not all farmland becomes forest, right? What I'm showing you here is a picture of Lost Valley, uh, and the part of Lost Valley in particular that is now a series of trails, and it's used year-round now for walking, running, hiking, cross-country skiing in the winter. You can still see, of course, the tower that used to be in the field here for, I believe, someone, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, for, for spreading pesticides and other kind of agricultural chemicals for managing the orchard that used to be here. This is right next to, um, uh, what's the name of the, Wallingford, thank you. This is former Wallingford land. And they still have a very active orchard. All that to say, some of the landscape that used to be farming has now transitioned, has adapted to recreational uses. This is true as well for the Lake Auburn Community Center, another wonderful place, another wonderful example of adapting former agricultural land. For any of you who have been to the Vista of Maine, up in green, right, similar story, thinking about adaptation through the lens of what we might call in the food systems world, um, value added or more retail focused endeavors. Taking that agricultural product of apples that can be a commodity and trying to do something much uh, more valuable with it from a retail standpoint, which is making it into cider, right? Again, a great adaptation strategy, not necessarily available for every single farm or farmer. But I want to acknowledge that this is out there in our community and is something that needs to be part of the conversation as we think about this much larger trend of agricultural land loss or conversion. There's this other piece to land loss and conversion, though, which perhaps is the most impactful, in part because it's really, really, really difficult to convert. Once you build a home somewhere, that home generally stays there. That soil underneath that home is now no longer available for agriculture or for forestry, right? This has a much more permanent mark to the <laughs> landscape. Commercial development, of course, is another driver of agricultural land loss and conversion. I showed you this picture at the beginning of the Auburn Poor Farm, right? This is what that looks like today, thanks to Google Earth. Again, Central Maine Community College, as well as some of the de residential development that's happened up along Turner Street. Whiteholm Farm, we now know and can see any day you drive up Summer Street is Whiteholm Farm Plaza, right? Another view of what this area looks like today. This is what is happening, again, not just in Auburn, but all over New England and to lesser degrees in the Midwest, but still happening there as well. These land use transitions that have profound and much more permanent implications for the future of forestry and agriculture. Again, I return to these trends to point out that in Maine in particular, despite the fact that this looks a lot like other states' trends, we have a very interesting uh, counterpoint to these numbers of agricultural land loss, which is that 
there actually has been in this time period from 2012 to 2017 an uptick in the number of farmers, new and beginning farmers, entering farming, despite all of the barriers that I mentioned at the beginning. And there's a variety of reasons for why this is in Maine, but Maine's one of the only places where the actual farming community is growing. And part of that is because of the long tradition of back to the landers and the work that MOFCA have done. But it's also, especially in Lewiston and Auburn, because of the large and growing numbers of refugee and immigrant and asylum seeking farmers who have farming backgrounds and by the hundreds are farming um, often collectively on plots of land that used to be abandoned in some cases. This is a wonderful trend and again sets Maine apart from some of our New England neighbors. But this raises a really important question. Given the number and the rate of agricultural land being lost or converted to other uses, and given this increase in the number of people seeking farmland, what do we do? How can food system planning address these competing trends? And when I say we, I, I really do mean this as a we. This is a communal conversation that needs to happen, and indeed in Auburn and in Lewiston has been happening for, for years. I want to acknowledge that, and it, it, to be clear too, it's also still ongoing. Even though there has been specific changes to Auburn's agricultural <laughs> zoning ordinance, the work of the Agricultural Commission and others who, and the Good Food Council, I can see folks here, who are very interested in food systems and in actually supporting agriculture, have been having these conversations and continue to have them. So one way to answer this particular question of what can a municipality do given these trends is to look at the specific case of Auburn's agricultural zone. And for those of you who are deeply familiar with what this is, I apologize. For those of you for whom this is a new idea or concept, I'm going to give you just a really quick overview of what this municipal ordinance did and, and still does. So it was initially created in, in 1964. It covers roughly 20,000 acres, give or take, of the city of Auburn. I don't have a map to show you, but largely it's in the northern and western parts of Auburn, as well as uh, south and slightly north of I-95, right? So largely the agricultural and forested parts of the city. Among many other parts of the ordinance, and the parts that have received the most attention, are those that govern what can and cannot be done from a residential and commercial development standpoint. Formerly. This has changed now, but formerly it used to be the case that you had to, as a landowner, own at least 10 acres of land and have at least 50% of your income coming from the land in order to be able to build a residential dwelling. This 50% rule or standard has been revised as of the last two months. It's now 30%, I believe, of your household in income or 30% of the area mean income of Auburn, whichever is lower. Did I get that right? More or less. <laughs> so in 1964, when this ordinance was created, it was created in part because it was assumed at that time that Auburn's population would double by the year 2000. That did not happen. And in fact, the population of Auburn has been roughly stable. The it's maybe gone down slightly, but the number of households has grown a little bit. And over the years, but especially in the last 10 years, there's been numerous attempts to both modernize or modify the ordinance for, for a variety of reasons. And I'm not going to go through any of those, in fact, at this point, except to say that many of you in this room have been deeply involved in the most recent process to think hard about what does it look like to have a municipal ordinance that actually meets some of the goals of farmland protection. And so with that in mind, I want to share with you the results of a study that I conducted along with a couple of the students that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, as well as some of the folks here in this room who gave a lot of input and guidance into what this should be doing to really focus on people who are most directly affected by the agricultural zone ordinance, which is the landowners, roughly 800 individuals and families that own some small piece of this so-called ag zone, since they are the ones who both stand to be affected the most by changes to the ordinance, but also are the ones who have the most agency in thinking about what they themselves want to do and what this landscape in the rural parts of Auburn will look like going forward. And so 
the broad goal, if I can frame this whole thing for you, for the study, was to take a step back and move beyond some of the more politically contentious parts of the ag zone modification debate, which focused around the 10-acre rule and the 50% of your income rule, and say, well, wait a minute, what is the broader purpose of what this ag zone ordinance is? Originally, as it was conceived in 1964, it had five main goals. They were conservation of natural resources, preservation of open space, encouraging agriculture, forestry, and recreation, preserving, preservation of rural character, and preventing urban sprawl. And the question driving this particular survey and study and the question on the minds of a lot of Auburn residents, including those who helped give me input to this work, was how relevant today in 2020 or 2019 at the time are these five goals? And how do landowners who have a piece of this ag zone think about these five goals when it comes to their own decision making on their land and what they think should or could happen in the ag zone as a whole? So again, specifically, we wanted to know with this survey that I'll tell you more about in a moment. Um, what are Auburn landowners' plans for their ag zone land? What do they value most about the ag zone as a whole, beyond their own individual land? And what is the desirability of future ag zone alternatives? In other words, what if there were significantly more agriculture, or significantly more forestry, or significantly more residential or commercial development? How do people think about that? And how can that, in part, inform the purpose of this new, modernized, recently passed agricultural ordinance, how can it inform the future work of the Agricultural Commission, which has recently been charged and I believe seated and is now tasked with actually trying to think from a municipal standpoint about how to encourage agricultural and forestry use, and as well to inform ongoing comprehensive planning in the city of Auburn. So, I keep mentioning this survey. Um, the survey was designed in part with a lot of conversation from some Auburn residents uh, through some past work I had done with students uh, at Bates looking at land use change in Auburn over the period of the Ag Zone uh, ordinance creation, in other words, the last 45 to 55 years, um, and done with input from various folks who are in and beyond city government. Some of the folks are in the room today, and again, I want to acknowledge their input and their guidance as we developed actual survey questions that went out to landowners. Logistically, uh, we printed the survey and sent it over five different waves, as we call it in social science research, which is to say, each time uh, we, we, email, we mailed uh, a copy of the survey to landowners up to five times until we heard back from them. So for some of you who maybe were on the receiving end of those surveys, thank you for your, your responses. Um, this happened in July and August of last year. As we received responses from landowners, in total we received 315 responses out of a total of 772 possible landowners. Um, that's a 41% response rate. Um, this is quite a robust and solid response rate, given the fact that most survey research of any kind, whether it's public opinion polling or election uh, primary polling, typically gets response rates down in the teens or single digits, depending on their method. Overall, we had about a 3% margin of error, which tells us that we have high confidence that the 315 landowners we heard from are broadly representative of all ag zone landowners on the whole. So let me tell you a little bit about who we heard from and where they live. Of our respondents to the survey, 76% live in Auburn, 24% live beyond Auburn, sometimes in other main communities, in some cases out of state. We had folks in Georgia and California. Often these are children of individuals who used to live in Auburn, still own land, but the land got passed on to a child who now lives elsewhere. Now, based on city data on where all ag zone landowners live, you can see that our survey data is slightly biased towards people who live in Auburn. Now, given the high interest and press coverage of this particular project, but of the ag zone modernization process as a whole, this isn't surprising. A lot of folks 
in this community are very interested and have been engaged in questions of changes to the ag zone. We also asked ag zone landowners how many generations they have had the land in their family. And what you see here is that there's a strong bias in favor of recent first generation landowners. And legacy landowners constitute about 40 to 45% of all landowners. And then again, because the actual ag zone ordinance has an income based requirement for considering the possibility of developing residential structures. We also were interested to learn, given the massive changes in the agricultural business, how many people actually are making 51% of their income from their land? And what you see here is, in fact, what we would expect to see, broadly speaking, in farming and forestry, which is that the vast majority of individuals do not make the majority of their household income from their land. There's a lot of reliance on off-farm sources of income. Again, this is true nationally, not just in Auburn. So what I'm going to do here now is present the results from three specific questions on the survey. We asked a lot of questions, and I have a lot more data that I could show, but in the interest of trying to tell a, a neater story that actually fits within our time frame, I'm going to get into just three. So first, we asked landowners in the next 10 years, how desirable to you are the following future uses of your specific ag zone land. And what we found is this. And let me just orient you to what you're seeing here. Again, if, if you all work with data on a regular basis, this may be old hat to you. But for those of you who don't look at these kinds of charts all the time, what you see here is in the dark and light blue on the left, 68% of landowners said it's either very desirable or desirable to pass land on to the next generation compared to in green on the right, 11% saying it's undesirable or very undesirable to do this. In white in the middle is people who are on the fence who said it's neither desirable nor undesirable to do this particular thing with my land. So these are the, other, are the results for 10 different options we gave to landowners. And what I want to call your attention to is that passing land on to the next generation and actively managing land yourself are by far uh, the most popular items in terms of how landowners think about their land individually. There's a split here between what landowners say they want to do as far as building a house for themselves or their family versus, in the bottom here, selling your land for residential development. Landowners are, landowners are about evenly split between those who want to or don't want to build a house for themselves or their family, but there's a far greater consensus uh, against the idea of selling their own individual land for res residential development. These items in the middle interest me a lot as well because these are the individuals on the left who are most likely to see their land change hands in the next few years, right? Selling your land to others for farming and forestry, renting your land to farming and forestry, or allowing public access on your land. These numbers might seem kind of low at first, but again, we're asking farmers and landowners just to think about the next 10 years. And so in the case of first-generation landowners who maybe recently acquired their land, this may not be on their radar yet. But I would expect these numbers to grow over time. We also wanted landowners to think beyond just their land and think about the ag zone as a whole, since what their neighbors do may impact what they themselves do on their land. So we asked, when you think about the things that make a desirable rural community, how important to you are the following characteristics? Now, there's a lot up here, so I'm going to walk you through a few of the highlights to orient into what's going on. Again, in this particular case, the blue bars indicate that this item, farming and forestry practices that keep the area's water clean, 82% said this characteristic this characteristic, excuse me, is extremely important or very important, compared to 7% who said this is not important at all. So what do we see here? What stands out to me are the items that indicate conservation and a working landscape, right? Keeping the area's water clean, but still having forestry practices and farming practices. It's not like we're just letting the landscape be and walking away, are very important, right? Conserving soil, conserving water. Keeping property values stable and keeping property taxes low are also very important as a general goal for this population. And then specifically, maintaining the viability of working forests, of 
working family farms, right, are also considered on the whole to be important. The last item at the bottom is maintaining the viability of non-farm non or non-forest businesses, things like gravel pits. These are things that other communities have found to be important to them, um, less so in this particular area. Preventing industrial development on family, farm, or forest land, or preventing housing development, again, something that is on the whole found to be important to this ag zone landowner population. And then thinking much more from a preservation rather than simply a conservation standpoint around keeping water pristine for aquatic species, preserving large areas of land for nature's sake, and then hunting, fishing, hiking, recreation. The more amenity features of a landscape are also found to be important alongside the more working sides of the landscape. But on the whole, this is what stands out perhaps the most to me, which is that everything in this red box has 50% or more of landowners saying, this characteristic is important or extremely important to me as an individual about what this ag zone community looks like. There's much more consensus here around what the ag zone ought to be and ought to look like than there is disagreement. That's a really important thing. We finally then wanted ag zone landowners to think about the future of what the ag zone could be. And we asked, as you think about the future of the ag zone, how desirable are the following possibilities. And what we see here are, again, if I can orient you, in blue are this characteristic is very desirable or desirable, and then in green on the right, this is undesirable or very undesirable. And what we see here is that opportunities for increasing the viability of agriculture and forest livelihoods is very important and very desirable to a significant number of landowners. These top three items deal with the ability to sell local food and the ability to sell uh, renewable energy, either solar energy or biomass energy from their land. But again, these are land-based livelihood opportunities that ag zone landowners would like to see more of on the whole. But then there's these often less talked about but equally vital parts of what make a rural community and economy work, which is more member-owned cooperatives for pooling resources and gaining economies of scale, community-run workshops for sharing knowledge and practices, um, increasing cooperation among landowners rather than competing with each other, community gatherings and traditions. Again, these things don't often enter into municipal discussions around the minutia of land use ordinances, but are vital parts of how people imagine a desirable community. And again, these have broad uh, support and are seen to be much more desirable than undesirable parts of this landscape. Finally, I want to call your attention to these bottom two items with which both deal with the possibility of increasing residential housing development in the ag zone or increasing commercial development in the ag zone in the future. And for both of these, there are small numbers of people who say these are both desirable or very desirable, but far greater numbers and proportions say these are undesirable or very undesirable overall. The last results I want to share with you ask landowners to think, as you think about the future of Auburn's built up urban areas, how desirable are the following possibilities? And part of the reason why I'm going to show you this result is because what happens in Auburn's downtown, in any city this is true to, the urban core has implications for what happens on the periphery. A city is a city, not just because of what's happening on its fringe. And as rightful as the attention on the ag zone has been, what's happening in downtown Auburn is not disconnected from broader conversations about what this broader community would like. And I think there's a lot of folks in this room who recognize that, but we wanted to know from landowners, how do they think about the downtown urban core? And what's striking to me is that Across all survey items, these are the items that have the most agreement across landowners, which is creatively reusing former mill space, concentrating new housing development in the urban core, and concentrating new commercial development in the urban core. Far more agreement about these being desirable futures for the city of Auburn as a whole. I'm going to leave you with, before I open up, up to questions, a few observations of mine from having talked with a lot of individuals, from having spent a lot of time with the data that I showed you and others. First, 
there are tensions that exist between what individuals say they want to do with their land and what they say they would like for the future of the ag zone as a whole. For example, there's some individuals who say, I would like to build a house on my land for me and my family, but I would find it undesirable if this happened more broadly in the ag zone. Right? This is a common thing we see in society, right? I want to do what I want to do, but I don't want you to do it. Um, this is real, and this is a difficult tension for any municipal ordinance or city government to manage, but it's there. Second, there's significantly more consensus than disagreement across all of the survey questions we asked among ag zone landowners. I think in a conversation about what should happen to the ag zone ordinance, there is a rightful disagreement and tension and flashpoints around all of the potential outcomes. And yet, I don't want to have that mask the fact that there actually is greater agreement around the imagined and desirable futures of what the ag zone could be. And it's not just about people who want to build versus those who don't want to build. It's far more complicated and nuanced than that. Part of that is because although landowners care about housing and residential development rightfully has been a focus in part of the ag zone modernization discussions, there are many other additional community and economic characteristics that landowners say are as important if not more important than the housing issue. These are again things like recreation, uh, conservation of soil and water resources, right? Thinking about relationships between neighbors, about cooperatives, about energy, right? These are, these are far beyond residential or commercial development. They need to be part of the conversation too. Fourth, there are some limitations of any sort of income-based zoning standards for development. And the question I have, and others have asked this too, is, well, who do these income-based standards leave out? If we require 50% of your land, of your, of your income to come from your land before you can build, or 30%, what is that, or whom is that leaving out? And I've got a few examples up here of people in this community who, for example, are immigrant and refugee or veteran farming communities who farm collectively, are not just an individual farm family who maybe looks like the traditional family farm from 50 years ago. This ordinance, and they may not have a lot of income, right, from their land. It might just be for subsistence farming, and therefore the standard may not be as helpful for them. Second, any kind of cooperative or collective farms or forestry that have multiple streams of income, how is that recognized or not by a more simple income-based standard? Incubator farms. I know there's been conversations among folks in this room around how Auburn's uh, landscape could be used differently to incentivize and help birth new farming programs. How is that looked at as a source of income? How would that be viewed in this ordinance? And then agritourism, which again is a, a new way of adapting uh, former agricultural land for new revenue sources. That's a, that's a really tough question, right? But may involve additional residential development, but maybe different kinds. Fifth observation is that there's strong urban cores support strong working landscapes. And this is not just about Auburn. This is true in lots of communities that have really chosen to focus their development dollars and their development priorities on reactivating and revitalizing the downtown spaces to make them more walkable, to incentivize retail to move in, maybe smaller scale, more mom and pop retail rather than larger box stores, right? This is not, again, something that's new for me. It's standard planning practice in a lot of communities. But all that to say, downtown cores are not disconnected from the pressure to develop on the periphery. And I think any ag zone conversation that continues in this community ought to, and indeed does, think about what's happening in Auburn's former mill space. And then finally, and this is perhaps the most important thing that has stuck with me, which is supporting viable land-based livelihoods can happen in lots of different ways. Farming and forestry look very different today and have far more options for revenue streams, for value added, for processing, for direct selling local food, direct retail, CSAs, than they used to. That's a strength. That's a wonderful opportunity, but it also requires a lot more infrastructure and planning and relationships and logistics. That is something that this community in both Lewiston and Auburn have been thinking about and talking about. And I know there's been just in the last few months, um, the local foods, local places workshop that 
is creating an action plan for thinking about how to better support these alternative livelihoods. But I want to add to that this element of energy production, whether it's through biomass, whether it's through solar and new opportunities that the state of Maine through their revised solar bill have and what that could look like here in Auburn. But the point is this. My hypothesis going into this, and I think it's started to be borne out, is that some of the desire for individuals who own land in the ag zone to subdivide and build on their land, but not all, is driven by this, I think, very legitimate and understandable desire to have a stable livelihood from their land. As these broader global and regional forces have eroded the ability of traditional farming and forestry to make a solid livelihood, people see no option in some cases, and there's plenty of exceptions, they see no option but to think about selling or parceling out their land or building on it as a source of income, perhaps for retirement, right, for any number of reasons. I get that and I'm sympathetic to it, but I want to broaden the conversation to think about, well, there's actually lots of other ways to have a livelihood from the land. And I think that's happening, it's always been happening in this community, and I'm really encouraged by the continuing conversations from folks in Auburn about ways to think creatively about how to support solar, biomass, local food production, and other sources of land-based livelihoods for landowners. So with that, I would gladly take your questions and engage a discussion with those, all the, those of you who are here. Thank you. Can you tell us what was going on in 1964 in Auburn that led people to believe that the population would double? There's probably folks in this room who can answer that question better than me. Um, but I, I think it, it probably had to do with looking at regional outlooks of job growth, job creation, uh, perhaps mistaken ideas about what would happen in the global uh, economy from a shoe production and other manufacturing standpoint. But I think if you look at Auburn's population growth in the first five to six decades of the 20th century, and you keep making a line that continues in a linear fashion, you, you arrive at this doubling. And I think it was, it's a, it's a common mistake to look at the past to predict the future, um, but it's understandable that that may have been what drove it. There's probably more specific local contextual reasons for that, but that's my very uh, naive understanding of what in part was assumed. Thank you, Professor Eanes. I think you really captured a lot of what has happened over the last couple of years around this issue. One thing I just wanted to clarify is that the um, Ag Committee, or commission as you called it, has not been seated, that they're still accepting applications. Um, it will be within the next month. But I want to make sure that people understand that unlike a lot of committees or commissions, this one has some very specific requirements in terms of people having skills and experience in farming and forestry um, because it's an important job that they're going to be doing. So it is requiring that people be Auburn residents and have skills um, in those areas. And I think that that's important for people to understand because we realize that this is extremely important and you ne really need to be knowledgeable about what's going on. So they're still accepting applications. February 28th until February 28th. Thanks for clarifying that. I just wondered if there were other communities in Maine or areas or counties where there are other ag zone questions going on and, and could you also talk about the role of the Maine Farmland Trust? Yeah, so my understanding is that there are communities like Unity, Maine that have undertaken similar approaches, um, I should say similar questions rather, the approaches they've taken to farmland have been much more, um, a little more complex, where they have different zones within the same geographic boundary that allow for different kinds of rural land uses. In other words, they're really trying to concentrate agriculture into certain parts and trying to concentrate forestry or recreation into different parts, which is different than having a single zone that encompasses multiple land uses and tries to balance those different needs. Auburn's unique in actually many respects beyond even Maine for just how sweeping this ag zone ordinance is and in many respects has been phenomenally successful at um, trying to keep residential development um, limited to certain geographic areas. I had a really hard time finding any other community that had such like 
very detailed and clearly like well thought out um, attempts to try and manage land use in this way. What we tend to see in most other communities is approach called transfer of development rights. And this gets back to your point about Maine Farmland Trust, which is, this is, a, I'm vastly oversimplifying this. A landowner may sell the right to develop their property to uh, another place in the urban core, in the same municipality, um, that would allow the person in the, or the developer in the urban core to build larger or more dense than currently allowed by code. So in a sense, you're, you're trading density in the urban core for pre protection of land on the urban periphery. But what makes this whole thing work, of course, is that in order to gain the right to build more densely or more you know, taller, there's a payment that goes to that rural landowner to help compensate for loss potential revenue from more rural development. So one of the challenges to making something like this work in a place like Auburn is that you need to have a fairly robust and strong demand for housing in the urban core um, for there to be enough market incentives to make this whole transaction work. But it's definitely possible. Um, I think we tend to see it in more fast growing, larger urban markets. Um, but I, I imagine, and I don't know enough, um, that there are examples of communities on the scale of Auburn that have made this kind of transfer of development rights work. But Maine Farmland Trust may be a vehicle for facilitating some process like that. There often is a, a third party intermediary um, that helps with that. Now, I think there's folks in this room right here who are much more able to fluently speak about the role of land trusts like Maine Farmland Trust. I think the challenge for in their particular case is that they tend to use and work with landowners who have larger land holdings or have greater financial income from their land. Um, then may be true for a lot of the landowners who might be smaller or not have income from their land in Auburn. And so there's a lot of folks who might be fall through their kind of sweet spot of landowners they prefer to work with. So is there a role for them? Absolutely. I think they may have even done some work. Androscoggin Land Trust has, has done work in Auburn as well in trying to think about alternative um, land protection schemes. But I think that the important factor that I think about here is to think <coughs> as holistically as possible because what's happening on my neighbor's land is gonna affect what I can or cannot do on mine. And I think taking that broader systems-based approach is a essential piece. Uh, do you think that this zone, current zoning rule or regulations is so restrictive that it dissuades or impedes the development of housing for young people who perhaps would like to come here and just don't come here. Is it that punitive? I'm just wondering, you, you talk about the connection between the rural side and the core. Well, you need, you need new people coming in in order to have both. Right. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Are we really shooting ourselves in the foot with this? system that we have? So that's a, that's a really good question. And I think it's been raised um, legitimately by a lot of folks. And in part, for at least some individuals, was the motivation for changing the rules to the Ag Zone. Um, I'll, I'm going to say a caveat before I say any more, which is that I have not actually studied this issue. Um, I have not looked at any data that could tell me one way or another um, what folks who are interested in moving to Auburn want in terms of more rural versus more urban, uh, farmette versus maybe a, a smaller, denser, um, urban, more walkable living context. So I'll say that. Having said that, I think from a demographic standpoint, um, we know that the trends both regionally and nationally towards of, of what young like families, what young individuals want is actually far more directed towards dense, walkable urban communities. Are there individuals who want to live in more rural areas? Absolutely. But from a proportion of all first-time home buyers, um, I think there actually is a lot of evidence, again, thinking beyond Auburn about what people want. Having said that, I think what is probably most important in this debate is rather than thinking about uh, it's, it's really what, what are the compatible and incompatible land uses 
that the city needs to keep in mind and, and hold in tension. And as I said earlier in my, in my talk, once you build a house somewhere, once you start incentivizing that development, there are a lot of both intended and unintended consequences that come with that. There's increased cost to maintaining roads, building new roads, uh, providing trash services, providing bus services for children going to schools, right? And there's increased costs that often are not visible up front to the municipality to providing the essential city services. And the farther you get out from the urban core, the larger on average those per household costs can become. And so it's not my, my job and it certainly is not something I feel comfortable weighing in on whether Auburn should pursue that or not. I'm simply relaying the fact that this, this is a trend that we see in other places and other communities that have incentivized more small parcel rural development have seen these changes in municipal costs. Having said all that, I don't know, I don't know if there are lots of folks who would love to move out of Portland and come up to Auburn to live in the ag zone. Um, that's, that's beyond my capacity to actually answer. Thank you for your work. Um, I sat on three different uh, comprehensive plan uh, committees, so I guess I'm a glutton for punishment, but um, <laughs> it was the major source of sort of argument and discussion and took up the lion's share of three decades worth of work by those committees. But it's stunning to me the answers that you got to your questions from your survey tie very neatly to the three decades worth of work of those different uh, committees. Um, very consistent. They didn't want to radically change the zone. They were willing to tweak it. They always talked to farmers and really the, the leadership that we got from people like Morris Keene and John White back in the 60s was very strong because there's still a strong consensus in favor of the bulk of what we have for regulations pertaining to that zone. So thank you for your work. Um, I, I appreciate your being the honest broker here. In, in regard to the results of your survey, which seems to be very complete and very impressive. Uh, correct, me if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I gather that the um, current administration in Auburn, led by the mayor, uh, is not as impressed as some of his council members, and that his interests may may uh, sit with the lower elements of your survey questions uh, than the upper ones. <coughs> but it's still confusing me. I gather the council, the new council, is continuing work from the previous council, and, and they really don't know where they are. Uh, can you uh, give us a status report? of where, <laughs> where they stand on these matters, which has been um, possibly affected by the uh, upcoming uh, construction of the most expensive high school in Auburn, in, in the state, uh, which I personally supported and continue to support. But one of the results of that new construction, hopefully, will be attracting families with school-aged children into the community who will be looking for housing again, and perhaps housing in the ag zone. So where do you see things are at the moment? So without, without dodging your question, I'm, I'm looking at two Auburn city councilors who are in the room right now who, who probably could get actually a better 
outlook on where things stand right now. I'm happy to follow up to anything they say to give my, my sense, but I want to hear from them first. Is that okay? Absolutely. I'm Katie Boss. I'm an Auburn City Councilor at large, and I appreciate the question. And we've only had about two months now that the new council has been seated, and we've not had an opportunity to work together and talk about agriculture. I think that many were happy to see the, the door close on the Ag Zone conversation <laughs> before the new term started. Um, but I can say, I can't speak for the mayor, I can only speak for myself. I, again, I can't speak for the rest of the council either, but I'm really grateful to have this survey data at our disposal as we go forward in talking about the Ag Zone, particularly in um, being used by the, the um, Agricultural Commission. I think it's really critical. Um, I also wanted to make one brief comment, which is to talk about the housing question about millennials or young folks who are looking to buy and potentially move to, our, to Auburn to live here. And um, there's a brand new survey that was just published at the end of 2019 by the National Association of Home Buyers that talks specifically about what millennials are looking for in terms of their housing. Do they want to buy new? Do they want to buy older homes? Do they want to live in town or do they want to live outside of town? And what that study has shown very concretely is that nationwide millennials or younger generations are very much split down the middle in terms of buying new or old. But in terms of where they want to live, the vast majority want to live in urban cores or they want to be in suburbs that are tightly next to downtown settings. So they are not interested in living on the outskirts of towns. Now, again, this is national data. We don't have data specific for Maine. I'm, it's something that I'm pursuing right now with the National Center for Healthy Housing. They're able to look at data for our state, so I will be looking into that. But I think it's a, a really critical indicator, and I think it's something that we should be focusing on as we go forward in our planning for our downtown and our ag zone. So thank you for the question. I would just like to add, I think it's a good question, but in terms of, again, real estate, and I'm not an expert, there is plenty of opportunity for young people to come in and buy property that currently exists in either the downtown core or right around the downtown core without having to necessarily spread out and build new um, in the ag zone. Um, so when the people, if people come and decide they want to move here, there's plenty of opportunity in existing housing right now um, for folks. The only thing I'll add just to your question around where, where I see things is taking a step back from, from city government and the Ag Zone ordinance as an instrument of that. Um, there has been for a long time, but especially in the last couple of years, significant efforts by entities and organizations beyond either city to think really hard about what does it look like to have a more vibrant agricultural and forestry economy and community, given the land resources that are here, especially in the River Valley. And that work continues. That's through the Good Food Council. It's through St. Mary's Nutrition Center. It's through Healthy Androscoggin, um, through a number of our immigrant and refugee organizations, through the Cooperative Development Institute. I could go on. The point is to say there's been a lot of good planning work done, both by those organizations and in concert with the cities, to think not necessarily about the housing question, but about what does it look like to have a vibrant working landscape in our communities. And so that that's really where I see things going. There's been some good planning work done with some very specific and concrete actions of what will happen in the next 18 to 24 months. That to me is a good indicator, a good status of where those conversations stand, setting apart the housing piece. Thank you for all your hard work and for the Bates students, great job on the survey. A couple things I wanted to ask and just get your opinion on. When you talked about barriers to farming and agriculture, I didn't really catch that you talked about just the inherent low prices and market problems for farming that farmers have to face. And then the other, uh, wonder what you th would think about uh, any comments about the role that uh, economic development can play in supporting agriculture. Yeah, thank you. So I, I might have mentioned it just obliquely. Um, thanks for the questions, Doug. But in terms of the, the low prices that, that farmers get, um, this varies a lot by their commodity. But this is going to be true across the board, whether it's timber, whether it's you know feed corn, whether it is commercial vegetables. Um, if you're not setting your price and you're <laughs> responding to the Chicago Board of Trade, you're, you're hogtied by both the people who are selling you the inputs to grow that food or harvest that forest product or the people who are then buying things. And I think there's a lot of research that has showed that farmers are getting squeezed in between 
both of these entities and have very little control. To the second part of your question, I think there's a huge opportunity to scale up the local food, local economy potential. And I don't just mean farmers markets. That's a huge part of it. And I think there's a lot of good work being done around creating a permanent home for both the Lewiston and Auburn farmers markets. I'm talking about Bates College, CMMC, um, CMCC. A lot of our institutions buy a tremendous amount of food and those resources, those financial resources they put into food production goes elsewhere. It goes to Cisco. It goes to Central Valley of California. And that will always be the case to some degree. You know, this is not a community in which, based on our climate, we can grow all of our own food. But there's a huge opportunity for economic de to de development to help develop some of that mid-scale processing infrastructure to extend the season to also help broker the relationships between the institutions and clusters of food producers to connect that link that I think it's there, but it has a lot of room to grow. I'm, I'm really excited about what that can look like. Thank you. Thank you.